Welcome to the Data Brilliant Podcast with me, Joe Dos Santos, Chief Data Officer at Click. In this series, we explore how data is reshaping and redesigning the future of our business and personal worlds. From business leaders to educators to public figures, we'll be joined by experts who will give us a fresh perspective on the world through data. Today, I'm joined by Joel Finkelstein, the co-founder and director of the Network Contagion Research Institute, a not-for-profit organization whose mission it is to track, expose, and combat misinformation and deception online through data analysis. Welcome to Data Brilliant, Joel. Thanks, Joe. Pleasure to be here. So, Joel, you certainly seem like the man of the hour here at a time where we are just swimming in misinformation. Is this real? Are we are we getting excited over nothing? Are we making a big fuss? Or is it as bad as we feel out there with respect to the dissemination of misinformation? Well, I, th- I think the sense we're getting from our standpoint is that it's even worse than the sensationalists would have us believe. Um, I think in the past... In the past few years, we've seen a series of mass seismic political shifts. The things that these seismic political shifts all have in common is that essentially they were fabricated by memes. They were pushed by groups of actors in fringe communities who foresaw that they would have huge impacts that nobody else foresaw. So these political seismic shifts are, are coming from a kind of new medium that we don't understand very well. And that medium seems to be having an, a, pow- a really powerful impact on our lives. So the result is that that the the ecosystem for disinformation has never been more powerful in terms of its ability to determine events on the ground. The people that understand that are the ones that are essentially able to seize control. So I think that that's a recipe for a situation that, that doesn't seem like it has a clear solution in the near future. Yeah, that's really quite something. And you are at the front lines at the Network Contagion Research Institute of seeing those things up close and personal. Can you tell us a little bit about the research that you do to understand the nature of misinformation as it's happening on the internet? So the way that our organization works is that we've created an ingestion engine. And what it does is it ingests entire web communities at a massive scale. Um, So with this kind of engine, we have the ability to index the communities, analyze them, understand what's happening within them co-currently, um, use machine learning and natural language processing to be able to, to generate rapid finished intelligence on what's happening within and between these communities. So it's almost like having a watchtower on social media. Um, and the idea behind the organization is that is that that's really what we need in order to monitor the trends effectively. I mean, it's almost like it's almost like monitoring the weather. You know, we need to be able to forecast what these trends are and contextualize them so that we can understand where it's going to be raining. Um, and and I think that, that that ability to understand how these trends are impacting our lives and being able to resolve that in real time, that's kind of a feature of how of how uh, smart. Uh, and well-meaning control systems can emerge, right? That we, we're monitoring our environment. We're making sense of it really rapidly. That's, that is the key to control for any kind of chaotic environment. And that's, that, the same is true here. And one of the things that I think you've seen through your research is that these communities are really, in many respects, offshoots of each other. You've seen kind of this this contagion of networks, these networks associated with other networks that give you insight to uh, new themes, but they seem to, in some respects, come from the same core. I think there's, I think that's a, a great insight that essentially, if you look at what's happening now, there, it, the, there's a reason why we see so much parallels between extremists across the spectrum on the left and the right. 
Um, and it's a very old reason. You know, it has to do with the fact that that this new medium of information is giving a tremendous amount of advantage to small groups of people who want to amplify this information. Um, and the people who do that, the small groups that do that, can have a really powerful and outsized influence. Now, the, the first time this happened was, you know, with the printing press, where you saw that the printing press created access to literacy and information in ways that really shook the institutions of the time. And there were bad actors there that were spreading out pamphlets like the Malaeus Maleficarius, a witch-burning manual. I think we're seeing something really similar here. And the result is that you have a lot of extremists who are amplifying this kind of disinformation, and they can do that successfully until everybody else is literate. So the advantage that they have is that we have a, a new medium and we don't have standards of literacy. That's what's at issue here. And I'm sorry you guys probably hear the baby in the background. My, my child, unfortunately, is a little colicky today and we have a small house. So I appreciate your patience. Life in the world of COVID. <laughs> um, so it's interesting that you put it this way. These, these concepts aren't new. It's just the technology has, has uh, changed the way in which and accelerated the way in which all this information gets disseminated. And one of the things I find fascinating about this is the human brain's inability to process in some respects these uh, misinformation campaigns and to tell the difference between that which is true and that which is fantastical or agrees with a world vision. Um, can you tell us a little bit about why does stuff land home? You know, we have an intuitive way of looking at information that that is pretty susceptible to being manipulated unless we take really you know pain, painstaking measures to avoid that. And the way that democracy has evolved and the way that, that we've kind of created means of getting rid of disinformation is through trusted networks of communication. And we, we establish trusted relationships and the trust should be hard won. And what that allows us to do is have our arguments out in plain sight. You know, we create transparency. The reason, the whole reason we do that, Joe, is because we're not really good at being objective individually. <laughs> so, so, you know, what I think the reason we're so susceptible to the problems of online, of the online communication system is that it's really kind of, it's really put the individual in this, in this place of, of interacting with the entire universe as an individual. Right. And so, and that's too much mm -hmm. information for anyone to be able to take in. Mm -hmm. We need to make sure the truth has a good advertising campaign because it turns <laughs> out it's an acquired taste, the truth. But, you know, we live in a world, <laughs> we live in a world where it's, it has, there's a lot to be said for telling the truth. There's a lot to be said for the people who protect it. And the funny thing about that is in the end, the people that protect the truth are the people who are protected by it. Hmm. It's great. Um, let me double back to a thought that you had around us being social creatures and us trying to work through truth in community. I was reading a paper that said, you know, in some respects, this is in our biology, the same instinct that makes us start to think that something is weird if everybody in a movie theater were to start to move to the exit signals to us that something is wrong because the community is is signaling something to us that's nonverbal. It's in our DNA. It's in our biology. And in some respects, um, these communities online are trying to take advantage of those do you think that there are different ways to create different kinds of communities, these kind of truth communities that you're describing? Well, it's a really, it's a, re you know, we're, we're getting into real thought leading territory here. You know, we're, we're really looking at the blue sky and, and look, I think that's really important. I think we have to do that because if we don't, if we don't have a vision of the promised land, then there's no point in marching out of Egypt. And so I think we do need to be thinking about what, what a network looks like that does that. 
And we've seen like something like 70% of the disinformation on COVID can be on Facebook can be related to something like less than a hundred people. That's amazing. That kind of impact is amazing. So look, this obviously isn't going to work because we're, we're in an environment where the loudest voices win. That is a stupid algorithm. <laughs> I mean, the louder you get, the truer it is, right? That is as stupid as a brain <laughs> or a machine can possibly be, right? So what we need right. to do, what we need to do is create a, a, an environment that privileges communication. Go back to the, to the, to the printing press. I, I, keep, I keep falling back on this because it's so historic. So I think there are two things that happened to resolve this historically. The first thing was that you had institutions that could arrive on common standards and norms that were more robust in the face of this. And, and those, like, you know, this is like editorial standards. The, the, you know, from the printing press, we ended up with the, the media, the press. And they forbid things like selling snake oil. And they agreed to do that universally, even though it was so lucrative. So the emergence of norms around communication is a really in, around institutions that could manage the, that kind of complexity was important. But with that, simultaneously, was a more educated populace. And so you had standards of literacy and you, have, you had norms of communication. And that created, that signified the, 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 the New Deal. So now the question for us, Joe, is what the New Deal looks like here. I mean, that's what, that's what we want to think about, right? So let's break down that New Deal because I think that there are three different components. There, there is the role of the individual who's consuming the content. Yep. There is the role of institutions that disseminate this kind of content. Yeah. And then there's the role of political and and uh, and government institutions to to monitor in ways that those things can't govern themselves. So let's break those down. So let's talk first about the role of the individual. You talked Great. earlier on about this being a data literacy issue. Um, what are some things that we would want to encourage individuals to do as they start to look at information in their personal lives, both uh, you know in social media feeds, but across any kind of network that they're seeing things? Well, I would point to the work of like, you know, the Center for Humane Technology. I, I think they're they're a real great thinker when it comes to the roles of individuals and, and what's what's available for the individual to inoculate themselves. Going back to the point we made about, you know, the people who privilege the truth, the truth protects those people. This is a great example of that. The individuals who adopt hygienic practices around information consumption are first and foremost the 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 benefactors. The, 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 they're the ones who benefit the most from making those commitments. So individuals have an incentive to protect themselves from disinformation. And first of all, there's, there's several apps that individuals can use, but there are basic practices around recognizing and learning to recognize disinformation that are going to be critical for us to adopt in the public school and civics courses face-to-face. -face. I mean, we need to be using tools to, to, to forecast what's happening online in the real world in civics courses around the country. Well, there, in going a little further on the individuals, there are now classes that are being taught at Stanford to students on the very nature of, of dissemination of information and, and understanding how to do your research. And there's research that suggests that some of this is just good old fact, good old fashioned fact checking. Are people yeah, actually totally. going to a secondary source and verifying that what they're reading is true before they're clicking again? Absolutely, and in fact, there, in fact, you even have games that that several folks have developed. Um, from the Center for Media Technology and other places that, you know, that, that gamify learning how to recognize disinformation. And these have been proven to work because they create the habitual mindset of looking for this. And some of these games are brilliant. Like, for instance, there's some where the individual has to act as a spreader of disinformation and see what they could do to effectively spread it. And that really teaches them 
you know, what, what tricks to look for when they're perceiving disinformation because they've done it themselves. You know, so these work, these in total, all of these have kind of marginal impacts, even that, even this kind of gamification stuff, it's like it reduces disinformation consumption by like 15%. So it's fairly marginal. And we're at the beginning of figuring out what best practices are there. Um, but I think in totality, you know, it's it's not this, look, what's going to really make the difference here isn't a course at Stanford. I mean, these are the kids, college campuses definitely need this. Um, but I think what's going to really make a difference is gonna, it's going to end up being something that's, I think, we need to be implementing across schools, you know, nationwide. And, and there, this needs to be in the classroom before high school. Um, you know, we're seeing, you know, teen influencers on TikTok. So we need to be thinking about how we can we can create those barriers, especially that for the youth. That's great. Now, the second pillar of this, you mentioned that, you know, at the time of the dissemination of the printing press or the introduction of the printing press, we, we had this idea that there needed to be norms that were created. Uh, we recently had Katty Kay of the BBC on the show, and she was talking about how the standards of journalism require certain things like you need to verify a story with two different sources. You need to have diversity of input in terms of what you have for your editorial content. And in some respects, I think there's a lack of that is what you're suggesting in the actual social media platform. So what do you think is next for these kind of norms that need to exist in the context of the places in which people get their news in the 21st century? So, you know, there's a term I've coined, and we have a report coming out on this, called disinformation with a Y. Disinformation with a Y is the use of disinformation and censorship to promote specific narratives that contain disinformation. (laughs) And I think that it's a useful term. It's a descriptive term because what it means is that there are some, that, that the implementation of double standards by the institutions that are nominally in charge of making decisions around what our norms ought to be, right? And that, and the, and the decision of censorship is that decision, right? As, as things stand, we have institutions like the platforms who are making that decisions. I'm not even sure they want to be making that decision. You know, they, they realize something's wrong with this architecture because they're constantly having to be the arbiters of truth. They're constantly having to be the arbiters of what our norms are, Right? Just from the get-go, we can see there's something wrong with this. It already signifies to people that they don't have control over their norms. And therefore, they don't have control over behavior. That might explain why things are so out of control. So, looking at that institutional relationship, I think what's needed there is, is something that's, that, that a kind of, you know, in, in, in journalism and other things, we need, we need something that's like a neutral third party. We need, we need the ability to create transparency in what's happening, not just within communities, but between communities. It always starts with fundamentally with the recognition that actually there's something we can do about this. So Joel, it seems like there's a growing consensus that the right thing to do is to censor people who spread misinformation on social media platforms. What do the data tell us about this approach? We need, we need to bury into this and we need to really understand what's happening with us. You know, the research that we've done and others have just done, members of the NCRI have done research on this that show that that when you censor these large-scale communities at mass, they, they almost immediately form elsewhere. Um, and not only are they formed elsewhere, but they've, they've been excluded from the community of the good. So they're, they're forming in ways that are more isolated. And uh, many individuals in these communities are, in fact, antisocial. Now, when you create, when you censor people from the mainstream and they regroup in smaller, more clustered and dense communities of antisociality, and you're taking people who exhibit antisocial behaviors, you're putting them together in the same community in close proximity to one another and hotboxing them. 
So that brings us to the third pillar that we've been talking about, which is really about the governing of these social media exchanges in a way that reestablishes the kind of trust that you've been describing here. Uh, who do you think is responsible for that kind of governance? Is it government institutions? Is it the private sector? So the institution that needs to emerge has got to be an independent institution. We're calling it the Centers for Disinformation Defense. Just like the CDC, it needs to be tracking disinformation the way we track diseases. We need to be able to objectively characterize how that's occurring on every media community to create a portrait of what the disinformation and hate ecosystem actually looks like, not from the standpoint of people who are seeking to profit, not from the standpoint of people who are seeking to control, and not from the standpoint of, of, of uh, extremists, bots, or foreign hostile actors. Really, from the standpoint of like, you know, like a PBS program bought to you by viewers like you. So in some respects, this idea of reestablishing trust in a third party, you know, if we were alive in the 1950s and 60s, we would have turned on the, the network news and seen Walter Cronkite or, and there was some, there was some arbiter of truth that was the, the media themselves. Um, in this respect, you're trying to reestablish trust by opening up a broader network and saying that censorship is literally the opposite of what we need to do. We need to have more transparency, more back and forth with respect to government, business, and the individual. And uh, I wonder if you can share with the list, with our listeners what the Network Contagion Research Institute is looking to do to establish that kind of governance and that kind of model. Yeah, that's, that's a great, okay, that's a great conversation. So what is, you know, enough of the abstractions. What is the, what does the inside of this look like? So first of all, I think we need a data trust. And a data trust is a structure that can ingest data from these platforms on a massive scale. And, and given that the data trust itself isn't seeking to monetize commercially any of that data, but is only seeking to use it as the NCRI has, to report to lawmakers or when, when necessary, to report to civil society institutions to help contextualize the weather around the emerging threats to democracy that are facing all of us at a massive scale. You know, and so I think that having the data trust is a really key component of this. Well, Joel, this has really been informative. And as we wrap up this conversation, I wonder if there is a way for you to give us three takeaways on how data is impacting the world as we know it. Well, I think it's the most important part of, the, of, of our process because we need – we have gone – we've embarked on a process of, of creating a huge ingestion of data from media and not just social media but all kinds of other media. And when we look at, at the behavior that we see, we're looking at the facts on the ground. So instead of, of, of making a conjecture about how people feel or, or, or representative claims, we're trying to be as responsible as we can in describing the claims we're making from the data – and that is that's that's such an essential such an essential standpoint for being able to to weigh in on this because part of what's at issue is people are making claims without data it's leading to collapse in trust so so much of what of of our of our operation relies on the fact that we are strictly speaking a data driven organization um, and I think that 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 is a huge strength of ours is that we it's it's not and it's not just the data it's the analytics right so we also have we also use machine learning. And analytics to be able to rapidly contextualize all the data, right? Because if you don't contextualize all the data and you don't actually do analysis with it that, that makes something that's really complicated really simple, all you're left with are a lot of complications. And that's really what's at fault in terms of how we're, why we're unable to communicate to begin with. We're not having problems of a lack of data. We're having problems of a lack of sense-making. 
And so being data-driven and using sense-making as a, as a feature of your, your algorithms, these are the keys to establishing trust in ways that are reliable. So Joel, how can our listeners find out more about you and your work? Um, you can go to www.ncri.io um, or you can go to networkcontagion.us. Thanks for joining us today, Joel. Thanks so much. It was a real pleasure, Joe. Thank you for listening to this episode of Data Brilliant, brought to you by Click and hosted by me, Joe Dos Santos. Misinformation is not new. Our technology is. And what we need now is not censorship, but trust. And that trust will come from transparency, discussion, and yes, even confrontation. And that might make us a little uncomfortable, but these things are key to allowing truth to wash over what dark corners of the internet there are right now. And in fact, this kind of open, honest debate is really at the heart of democracy itself.